This podcast is generously sponsored by the Pillar Network. The Pillar Network is a community of like-minded churches that are doctrinally aligned so that they can be missionally driven to plant and revitalize churches together. That doctrinal alignment comes around six DNA. They are committed to gospel proclamation, being Bible-based, to live expository preaching, to churches that are elder-led, confessionally baptistic, and kingdom-minded. Reach out to them today at thepillarnetwork.com, thepillarnetwork.com. Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast. I'm Nate Aiken. We are going to have conversations, as we always do, about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century, and we're going to talk about a very important topic, uh, that being the topic of heaven. I have with me today Pastor Andy Davis. He's been on the podcast before. Uh, He's recently wrote a book on heaven, and so, uh, Pastor Davis, thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. Nate, it's awesome to be with you. Looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. I got to hear you teach recently uh, on the topic of heaven at a, at a conference. I was very edified by it. But so I just want to ask some questions around that. First, let's just start here. What's the name of the book and sort of what stirred you to start digging into the topic and write this book? Yeah, the book is called The Glory Now Revealed. And the subtitle is What We'll Learn About God in Heaven. So the central idea is a dynamic heaven in which the redeemed will be forever learning. They'll be educated uh, about the glory of God resulting in fervent eternal worship. Um, so it's dynamic. Um, what led me to it is just for, for many, many years, I was interested in eschatology, interested in glorification, and uh, read Andy, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, which really opened up um, a vista of a dynamic heaven as opposed to a static heaven. I started to realize that I had probably a lot of static views of heaven, um, per- perfection for me, glorification meant static. I mean, basically, I would be instantly uploaded and would know as fully as I have been known, like the scripture says. And what that meant was everything there was to know about God, I would know mm-hmm. at glorification. And I never stopped to realize how faulty that that thinking must be, because then I would be omniscient. Mm-hmm. Or what may be known about God is a finite set, and that cannot be. So then I started. That was the key that unlocked the whole the whole museum that is my book. It's basically, yeah, I underestimated how dynamic this topic would be. If we will never be omniscient, that means we can forever be learning. You know, one quote that hit me, I heard it first with Erwin Lutzer is a very funny guy um, and a, a powerful preacher, but I don't know that he made it up because I, I think it's possible that Adrian Rogers might have said it as well. So it's one of those things you can never track down who originally said it, but it's a great quote. Here it is. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Hmm. And that statement is God is omniscient, so he cannot learn anything ever. All right. Well, that's true. But if we are not omniscient, that means things will occur to us. And when they occur to us and they're awesome, we react. Mm -hmm. And that's more what I was seeing in Revelation, where it says, whenever the 24 elders fall down, they cast their crowns and they give thanks. The word whenever is a dynamic word. It's not like 
one time they get down from their thrones and cast their crowns and they're permanently down and the thrones are permanently cast and they never move. That's a frozen view of heaven in which we are instantly on our faces before the throne forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And people never stop to think. It's like, yeah, that doesn't sound too appealing to me. That sounds like we're frozen, like in suspended animation. Well, that's not real. So the word whenever is indication of pulses, like a big boulder gets dropped down into a, into a lake and ripple after ripple after ripple hit us. And we're just again and again praising God. And that leads to an eternal education. And the topic is the glory of God. So good. So good. Uh, give us kind of a major breakdown of the book and the major topics covered uh, in, in the book. Okay, so I start by just asserting what I just said, which is heaven is about the glory of God. Um, that's not hard to prove because in Revelation 21, it says there's no need for the sun or the, or the moon or the light of the lamp to, to give light because the glory of God will illuminate the new Jerusalem and, and Christ will be the lamb will be the lamp. So uh, then you have to meditate on what is the glory of God, something we kick around all the time. And so I came up with a provisional definition that I've found helpful, which is the glory of God is the radiant display of his attributes or perfection. What are the attributes of God? They are descriptions of God. Um, systematic the theologians working over the centuries have come up with about 26 at most 30, probably not even that many attributes. Uh, they sometimes divide divide the attributes into two categories, communicable and incommunicable. Uh, communicable are those things that are true of both God and man, though in different degrees, obviously, like love, mercy, compassion, patience, um, justice. Those are attributes that we share with God, creating the image of God. But then there are things that are unique to God, like self-existence is a clear example of an attribute that is incommunicable. Um, anyway, so the perfections of God being put on radiant display. That's the glory of God. So God putting himself out there, putting himself on display, then we and the angels, angels and redeemed people being the audience, we are reacting. We're like drinking it in. And that's why God, Jonathan Edwards said, the end for which God created the world. That's why God made everything. Uh, he didn't need to create anything, but he wanted to create an audience because of generosity. He wanted to give himself to us. Heaven is where all the sins and obstacles are removed at last. And finally, we get to be educated and give glory and, and forever drink in the glory of God. And that is the, the usual definition, even of worship, is the, is the response to revelation. And so that's the picture of there's still going to be us learning and, and obviously worshiping in result in light of what we've learned. All right. So let me finish answering your question, what the book's about. I, so I start in the book uh, by asserting that heaven's about the glory of God and give that sense of that dynamism. Then I divide it into three categories. When we get to heaven, you got to transport yourself in your mind ahead. We're there. We're in our resurrection bodies. When we are there, our experience of the glory of God could be divided in time sense into three categories. God's past glories, God's present glories, and God's future glories in heaven. So God's present glories in heaven. Um, God's present glories will be what we think of like the throne of God, the angels, the redeemed people, all of us shining like the sun in the kingdom, the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all of that. That's what thoughtful people who have studied heaven think about God's present glories. The future glory is what we will do there. Hmm. Like in the new earth, what we will do with our resurrection bodies. And the Bible says almost nothing about that. It gives little indications, but no clear uh, statement. 
but my book's not about that. My book is primarily about God's past glories, things that are happening right now, today, and have been happening throughout 6,000 years of redemptive history. What God did in creation and redemption, in managing history, what he did every day, that is the education. That stuff we didn't know. And God will teach it to us so that we can praise him. That's what the book is about. So then in the next chapter, I have to support by scripture what I'm saying, because that's the methodology is important to me. So it's got to be based on sound exegesis and sound theological reasoning, or else it's faulty. So it says in scripture, God has, uh, has filled us with a hope, he says, that does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean hope doesn't disappoint? Nate, what does that mean to you, that our hope doesn't disappoint us? Context of the scriptures, our hope set on him who, who will certainly not let us down. Right. And it means also that our conceptions of heaven, of what, what we expect to happen there, will actually happen. Hmm. Imagine a father who is continually promising his kids things that he doesn't see through. He's, a, he's really a bad father to some degree. Hey, Saturday comes. I'm going to bring you to the ball game. We're going to the ball game on Saturday. And then don't follow. It doesn't happen. Yeah. And so the kid learns to just not believe the father. He learns. And it, when, why? Because he's disappointed. Hmm. What, what that scripture says, hope has to do with the future. Hmm. Our sense of the future is not going to be disappointing. And frankly, we're going to find out we underestimated how good heaven's going to be. Hmm. So, but for me, methodologically, I don't want what I assert to be, in the end, a source of disappointment to people. So, therefore, the only way I can do that is to base it on Scripture. So, I turn away from things like near-death experiences, which there are some wildly popular books based on near-death experiences. Now, my, my book is about Scripture and about reasoning from Scripture. So, then I have to prove from Scripture that we will remember in heaven our lives on earth. That, that actually, I have to prove it, and actually isn't hard to do. Uh, the simplest way to prove it is, is Jesus' statement, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Mm. So we'll remember all of Christ's words, like in your red letter edition of your Bible, all those words. Well, also the black words, too. <laughs> we're going to remember God's word in heaven. And once you remember God's word in heaven, then we're going to remember everything. We're going to remember everything God talked about. And so fundamentally, uh, I have multiple scriptural proofs that we'll remember in heaven our lives on earth, like rewards. We're going to be rewarded in heaven. But if you don't actually have the story to tell, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Well, if you get rewarded for being persecuted or even being a martyr, but then you don't remember what that was all about. That's like a Congressional Medal of Honor that nobody knows what, how the guy did it. So rewards, there's lots of proof I have. And then I walk on from there to just talk about how God will teach us every aspect of the past. There will be no division between sacred and secular history. All things will be fair game because God did it all. There's no such thing in the mind of God. Everything God did, even with the reprobate and with the elect, everything he did was for a purpose. And we're going to study it and we're going to uh, give glory to God for it. Yeah, that's an that's a important question I think people ask a lot. Uh, and again, unpack some of this. Don't necessarily have to unpack all of it. We, I want people to pick this book up. But 
that that is a big question. What what will we remember in heaven? Particularly, how will we not be sad? Some ask the question, how will we not be sad if we think about unbelieving uh, family members who are uh, in in hell? You talked a little bit about that in the sermon I listened to. I'd love to have you unpack that for the audience as far as what will we know? Obviously, you've said we're going to know everything, but kind of unpack even to that question, how will there not be sadness if we know, you know, of a family member that's in hell? Great question. And so there are three painful topics I had to address in my book. All right. Um, because I'm advocating. I mean, it really is logical. Either we will remember all of the past, some of the past or none of the past. Those are your options. Okay. I mean, there it is. I don't think there's another option. All right. If there's a fourth one, then all some or none, I don't know what it is. All right. So I think it's not hard to get to the all point. All right. Uh, the none point is like the total memory wipe. That's what I call heavenly amnesia. And that is weird. All right. And it's just, I think it's uh, unbiblical. Yeah. But then you get to the edited version. You know what I'm saying? But I, what I call like, you think World War II with a censor got hold of some, some soldier's letter and puts black rectangles through stuff that he doesn't think his wife should know, right? The censor. Yeah. You try reading that letter and it's like, it makes, it almost literally makes no sense. Yeah. It's tattered or maybe it's even literally cut. So it looks like a paper doll, you know, it's hanging there like a, like a, a snowflake. And it's like, I can't make any sense of that. So I then move to all, all right. God will show all to us, teach all to us. He'll hide nothing from us. And a key scripture on that is, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends because everything I've learned from the father I've made known to you. He's not hiding anything. Or again, Sodom and Gomorrah, God says, deliberates within himself in the text, deliberates in his own mind. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he comes up with, no, I'm not going to hide anything. All right. So then that leads to the three painful topics, namely our sins our sufferings, and the damned. Those are the three painful topics. The question we have to ask then is, will we remember those? Will we remember all, some, or none? And you know I get to all, so we're going to remember all. So then the key text always for me is Revelation 21.4. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Now, what is mourning? Intense grief, sorrow. So I believe that that eliminates heavenly shame. It eliminates heavenly pain. It eliminates heaven, heavenly regret. No shame, no pain, no regrets. All right? So just memory, but none of that. Instead, we will be so immersed in God's purposes in all these things and so immersed in how everything tended toward or did show the glory of God and all we'll care about at that point. We'll be like, tell the story. So I start to like the first topic is, is our sins. It's like, how can I remember my sins and not feel pain? How can I remember my sins and not feel shame? But you will. And the way that we do that is Romans seven says, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me. There's a decisive break between me and my sins. And as a redeemed man, I hate sin. I love righteousness and hate wickedness. I am conformed to Christ. I have the mind of Christ. But as a habitual sinner in a body of sin and death, I still sin. And Paul in Romans 7 grieves over that. It's the thing that brings him the greatest grief of all. The very thing I hate, I do. 
But because of that decisive break between me and my sin, that break will be eternally consummated in my glorification. So I'll be like, tell a story because I am not that man anymore. That's who I was. It is not who I am. Now, let me ask you a question. Will you be embarrassed to tell the story of David and Bathsheba and then the subsequent birth of Solomon and all the things that unfolded from that sin? Would you, Nate, be personally embarrassed by that story being told? Not at all. Because it's not you. (laughs) Yep. I'm just saying, take that idea and extend it to yourself. Yeah. Say, all right, I'm not, I'm not afraid or embarrassed to tell my story either. Because you imagine facing David, who you will see in heaven, and saying, I don't mind telling his story, <laughs> but don't tell my story. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So I believe in memory and narrative and history, but no pain, no shame. So that's the, that's the number one. I just, that's wonderful. It, it, again, and sometimes I think if we get too complacent or uh, with the gospel, we we miss just how radical the forgiveness is that we will receive, and and to be able to see that, you know, we're not no longer frustrated by the fall. It just we'll see even how much more gracious God was than we even imagined. Okay, so but let me keep going because we can't stop there. Um, when when it comes to the topic of grief and sorrow, we need to understand that the rules of the game now are different than the rules that will be then. We are allowed to understand the rules. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. But right now, there is, in fact, death, mourning, crying, and pain for us. Mm-hmm. So if we lose a loved one, if we lose a, a, a child, God forbid, but it, you know, it happens. If we have to bury a child, mm-hmm. it is inappropriate to tell Christians that they shouldn't grieve at that moment. And we don't grieve like those who have no hope, but we do grieve, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And do we grieve over our sins? James tells us we should. We should grieve, mourn, and wail, and change our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. Why? Because we're still in danger. Mm -hmm. There's still sanctification work to be done. Mm -hmm. We still have to put sin to death. And if we don't grieve over sin, we won't put sin to death. So the rules of the game now are different than they will be in heaven. And that extends also to uh, lost people. It is absolutely appropriate for us to grieve now. And that grief should move us to missionary action, as it did the Apostle Paul. Mm-hmm. Romans chapter, chapter 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the unsaved Jews. For unsaved Jews. What did Paul do as a result? He went to synagogues and reasoned in the synagogues day by day. And Sabbath after Sabbath. And how did it go? Pretty rough. Yep. Pretty rough, but he did it because he loved his people and he wanted to be sure. So Jesus wept over Jerusalem. We grieve now, but we will not grieve then. So I've come to believe that grieving over the damned, we never grieve ever over those who are damned. We grieve over people who are on their way to being damned. Well, said, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, we grieve sense. so that we can rescue them in heaven. We won't grieve. And I do believe this extends to God. I don't believe he grieves over people he has condemned to hell. Mm. I think Jesus wept over what was going to happen to Jerusalem. He doesn't show any indication of grief over those who are in hell. Mm. Proof of that is the rich man and Lazarus, that parable. Abraham and Lazarus are in heaven. The rich man's in hell. Do you get any sense that Abraham's kind of grieving over the condition of this guy in hell? Not at all. He says, you're getting what you deserve. Remember, my son, that in your life, you had your good things and you didn't share them. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't sense any grief at all. Nope. So that's how I would answer it. It's not an easy topic, but I do think it's biblically true. That's really helpful. Uh, just a couple more questions. So one, uh, you've you obviously hit on several things, but uh, what are some of the more intriguing things that as you started to do this, um, maybe even, I, got, I hesitate to say speculative, but maybe some of the intriguing things you pondered. You, you talked even about how uh, there might just be this possibility of obviously seeing past events, yep. like like we would see a movie, and then and then yep. obviously seeing them in light of God kind of revealing to us, here's yep. how I acted, and you know so forth. Love to hear anything that kind of hits sure. you when you were doing this study. Yeah, that's probably the most speculative part of my book, um, and I've speculated about more things since I wrote the book. Um, you know that that continue to be helpful, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Right. Um, so on that second one, for example, I believe if if we'll never be omniscient, we must have, therefore, some limited bandwidth in heaven. So we can't handle 500 million close friends, you know, multitude greater than anyone could count. Hey, they're all my best buds. I think that we will have infinite time to get to know them and learn them, but we didn't know them in, on earth. And so I would imagine the people, the redeemed people that were important to us on earth will be important to us in heaven. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what that means is our relationship with our wives is only beginning in this world. You think about that. That's pretty awesome. We won't have a sexual relationship because there's no more procreation, but we will have a perfectly oneness relationship. And that that's actually pretty exciting when you think about it. We're me and my wife are just getting to know each other as redeemed people and heaven. The, it's just going to expand in, in infinitely. That's pretty awesome. And so you and I, Nate, we're friends. All right. Imagine the perfection of our friendship in heaven. Uh, that's it's just it's just electric. I mean, the more you think about this stuff, it's so very exciting. Now, the thing you mentioned was the possibility that God may not merely use words. I mean, the idea of words, words are important, but um, but they're not the most impactful form of communication. All right, they are sufficient to get our souls saved. Mm -hmm. But seeing is better than hearing. Right. Job said that. I've heard of you with my ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Heaven to me is about seeing, not merely hearing. And the, the greatest insight I have on this of the infinite upgrade that we'll get in communication is in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, um, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I talked like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see as in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully. What is Paul doing? Well, look at the context. First Corinthians 12 to 14, he's addressing some aberrations on spiritual gifts, specifically, especially tongues and prophecy. And what he's doing right in the middle with the love chapter is saying, you need to understand the purpose of gifts anyway, the spiritual gifts. They're to foster love relationships between God and between one another. Mm. And if you're using your gifts, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and you don't have love, you miss the whole point. Mm. And you ought to know that these spiritual gifts are temporary and they serve a purpose Tongues and prophecy serve a purpose, but it's going to be infinitely better when we get to heaven. We're like doing baby talk with each other right now. We're going to get a massive upgrade of communication. So I think 
Now is a time of hearing that leads to faith. Faith comes by hearing, but heaven is a time of seeing. And so the idea would be that we would not be sitting in boring lectures on Chinese history. All right. We will be seeing what the Nestorians or what other missionaries did to bring the gospel. And then what our brothers and sisters did during the Cultural Revolution. Despite staggering persecution, we're going to get to see it'll be like movie night every night, only it's not night and it's not movies. It's just visions of God. Now, can God do that? Yes. I know a man, Paul says, who was caught up to paradise. He saw visions of the future. And whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. It's that real. The, uh, the Spirit took John ahead in time to show him the new Jerusalem. Why couldn't the Spirit take us all back in time to show us how she was built? Living stone by living stone. That's pretty awesome. Now, will it happen? I don't know. But this is, you know, we, we basically use the language we have now to try to understand how awesome that'll be. And again, you probably don't address this a ton, uh, but the idea of continuity, discontinuity with current creation, new creation, you know, Randy uh, Alcorn has this speculative, the middle section is kind of speculative where we play golf in heaven and so forth. So I, I want to know, do you address much of the continuity, discontinuity? And, and probably the most important question I want to ask is, will there be queso in heaven? So... <laughs> What what do you think? Oh, thank you for not asking me about pets. I've had like 20 <laughs> questions about pets. Well, we do know dogs will be in heaven, but cats won't be. So that's what we do know this. <laughs> I don't know what to say. No one ever asked about squirrels. No, I mean, or you know, they're always asking about pets. Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, so that's good. <laughs> um, I will say this, though, all humor aside, continuity is vital for me in understanding the new earth. Um, because I believe that this present earth will be resurrected. Um, and so the idea then is it's an analogy. It's an analogy between the redeemed, the elect and their bodies, their resurrection bodies is continuity, but difference. That's first Corinthians 15 continuity, but difference. We're not given bodies that are created ex nihilo. No, we're given our bodies that were raised from the dead, just like Jesus' resurrection body was not created ex nihilo, but he said to Thomas, touch me, see my, my wounds and all that. I was dead and behold, I am alive. That's resurrection. Well, the earth, if it could speak, will say the same thing. I was dead, but behold, I'm alive. There's a continuity and, the, and a connection between creation and the redeemed is made openly in, in Romans 8. Right. It's, it's like us. We're groaning. For our glorification, the earth is groaning for its redemption. And the clearest proof of this is the covenant promise made to Abraham of the land. God said in Genesis 13, walk through the land, the breadth and the length of it. Go look at it after Lot left. Remember, he goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's standing there before the Lord. He's still Abram at that point. He says, go walk through the land. All this land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. But then it says in Hebrews, he died not having received the promise. So he's got to get this earth or that God didn't or God broke his promise. Even if God gives him a new planet, a better planet, that's not the same thing. So it's got to be continuity, this earth. But there's nothing wrong with it being greatly improved because, frankly, Abraham himself will be greatly improved. So a resurrected Abraham gets the resurrected land. See, from what you've already said, we're going to learn. We're going to probably grow in the abilities to 
I mean, I can't sing well now. I'll probably get better at singing and learn how to do certain things. So there'll be yeah. this, this, I mean, even the sense of us, it's not the dynamic versus static as, as you talked about at the beginning. Right. And so to go back again, somewhat all humor side, and I, I love humor. I, I think it's, it's great, but on queso or on pets, generally, if the scripture, if I don't have a scripture, I say, I don't know. That's, that's what I do. And so when it comes to golf and all that, and that's where I love Randy Alcorn's book, but I don't think it's helpful to go too far beyond, to go into speculation. Uh, he generally had an ethos of if I like it or we like it, it's going to be there. And I'm like, I want to just have a scripture on that. That's all. I just think our tastes are going to be changed. That's true. But the finest, if the finest cheeses make it in, then, then we're going to be eating queso. So uh, <laughs> um, do you address eschatology at all in this uh, in this work? What do you mean by that? Just like I think it's all it's all eschatology. I'm sorry. So, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, kind of the how the, the Lord will bring the current creation to, to a close. No, not really. Um, you know, I find that that for those that believe in a literal physical millennium, a thousand year uh, reign, which I come in and out of, I, I think it's it, there's never been a theological topic that has so eluded final resolution for me. And I'm not the only one. I mean, I could give you a name of a guy that's a very well-known, well-thought-of New Testament scholar. And when I was writing my commentary on Isaiah, I got to Isaiah 65 on, it seems like it's talking about millennial life. And I went back to this guy who was pre-millennial and he had flipped and now he is millennial. And I'm like, whatever. So I would say, I'm not saying the name because I love the brother, but um, at any rate, um, I find I find a shocking lack of development on heaven by reformed theologians mm. like um, Louis Burkhoff has like literally one page on heaven. Mm. All right. Um, dispensational premillennial like standard evangelicals. Spend a ton of time on the millennium and almost no time on the eternal state. They just don't talk about. Yeah. So my book's about the eternal state. I don't I don't talk about the Antichrist or about except that I do believe the Antichrist will be part of in an, and all of the things that happen to get us there will be part of the backward look. It'll be part of what we go over. So I do talk about the Antichrist as the consummation of hostile governments and how God conquered. Well, then that, that does lead to a final question, which I think would just be helpful. Um, you know, there's a saying that kind of goes, that person's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And, and I've either heard my dad or others say that should be flipped. The heavenly minded people are earthly good. But yeah. I'd love for you just to give some pastoral thoughts on how do we live in light of kind of the things you're going to talk about in this book that are revealed in the scriptures. How do we live now with heaven in view? Uh, just some pastoral thoughts as we kind of close up. Right. Well, my final chapter is on application. And I found this, I, I already used the word electric. I found these things to be electric. Uh, let me give you a very simple application for me as a pastor. One of the dirty little secrets of pastoral hearts and the sins we struggle with is jealousy over brother pastors whose ministries are prospering more than ours. We, we all, or, you know, if you have a ministry, if you have a podcast, if you write a book, you are comparing your numbers unhelpfully to that of a, of a brother or even a sister who wrote a book and, and it's like, or did something. I, the more I meditated on what we will be like in heaven, the freer I was from that. Mm-hmm. I started to realize how true it is that when one part of the body is honored, the whole body is honored. And so we will be absolutely delivered from pride and selfishness in heaven. And we will be so thrilled to see what God did in and through all of our brothers and sisters. 
the more I meditated on that, the freer I got. Then I realized my job is to do everything I can to help my brothers and sisters be as fruitful as they possibly can. That's an application. Anyway, I came across a short story um, written by Leo Tolstoy, which James Joyce called the greatest short story ever written. James Joyce wrote a lot of things. He's an Irish writer. And, and he said, this Tolstoy story is the better, best short story ever written. And it was entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Mm-hmm. And it was set in Tsarist Russia of a, of a, you know, a merchant, I think, named Payam, who's dissatisfied with his life and he wants to improve his economic condition. And the only way he could do it in 19th century Russia was more land. Got to get more land. And so he tries a lot of things to try to get more land, but he finally hears that some 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 tribe east of the Urals are selling large tracts of arable land for like pennies. Uh, they're the Bashkir people. And, um, you know, if he could just get out there and buy some of that land, he'd be set. So he does uh, some research, find out it's true. He sells everything he has, gets a thousand rubles and goes out there. He finds that that it's true and the land's unbelievable. It's like it's it's like paradise. So he asks them how much the land costs. And they tell him it costs a thousand rubles per day. He said, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, a thousand rubles for however much land you can walk around in a single day. But the rules are you have to start and end in the same place and you have to get back before the sun sets or you lose your money. You lose everything. Hmm. All right. So you got to finish the circuit. And he said, well, a man can walk around a huge tract of land in a day. And they laughed and they said, well, then he'll have a huge tract of land. So he almost can't sleep. He's so excited. And the next day, you know, he puts down the money and he says uh, the he, the chieftain puts his cap down. He said, you got to start and finish here. He starts on a hill and he goes down the hill. And just long story short, I always picture it like a baseball, like he moves, moves from home to first, from first to second, second to third and third to home. The problem yeah. is he bites off more than he can chew on the first leg, you know, home to first. He he keeps going. He keeps seeing like some cops of fruit trees and some little river and, and he just got to have it. And so he just keeps going along the one leg. And then he starts to worry because by now it's mid morning or even late in the morning and he's hot and he's getting a little bit tired and he doesn't, he starts to worry. So he makes the second leg really short. And then as he starts moving back, the sun starts really moving through the sky and he starts to run. And the sun is, it's like almost like the second half of the day didn't even happen. And so he's just running and running and he gets to the bottom of that last hill and the sun sets and he's lost it all. He's lost everything. But they're yelling at him from the top of the hill. They said that we can still see the sun from up here. You got to get up, get up. You got to finish, you know. So he, he's got no strength left and he's laboring up that last stretch. And at the last second, he dives and grabs the chieftain's cap. And, made it. Mm. and they go crazy. They've never seen anybody go around such a big piece of land in one day. Problem is he's dead. Mm. And the story uh, is entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And they pick up the spade that he carried with him to mark his territory, and they used it to dig his grave. Mm-hmm. And the point, it's a story against ambition, mm-hmm. basically. Well, I turned the whole thing around. I said, all right, imagine that we get to, we get to kind of you know, chart out how much we're going to do for Christ, how many good works we're going to do, and how much of heaven do we want? I have a whole chapter on rewards being dynamic experiences of God. It's like, well, how much of the infinite God do you want? The more you serve, the measure you use is the measure you're going to receive. So I'm urging people to be ambitious in holiness and be ambitious in missions and evangelism. Be, ambis- be, be ambitious with your spiritual gifts. Do everything you can every day for the glory of God. 
And instead, this guy sitting in a lazy boy recliner at the top of that hill looks around, just enjoys the view. About you know mid morning, he gets down, goes about a hundred feet down, digs a little hole with his spade, goes over about twenty feet over, and then he goes back. and And before lunch, even he's back at his lazy boy, and that's it. That's that's what he did for the Lord. Hmm. I'm like, don't do that. Let's be ambitious for Christ. So that's basically how I'd answer. That's fantastic. The book is The Glory Now Revealed, so make sure to check that out. Also, uh, Andy's ministry, Two Journeys, uh, check, check that out as well. Lots of sermons and, and articles and things like that. It's been massively helpful to me. Uh, even before his Two Journeys, I've listened to a lot of the, you did some things on church history and some other things I've listened to in the past as well. So check out those resources. Uh, Pastor Davis, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for taking time to do this. Again, pick up the book. It's a, it's a really, really helpful book that does help us worship. Uh, and, and so uh, thank you for giving time to research and write that. My joy. I enjoyed being with you today. All right. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Movement One podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, babbis21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.